This is William Michael of the Classical Liberal Arts Academy, and today is Friday, September 24th. Past week or so, I published a talk that I personally think was an important topic, uh, where I talked about how Christian education should focus on philosophy rather than on religion or theology. And I explained in that talk why I think the way I do. And if you haven't listened to that talk, before listening to this one, I, I ask that you would go and find that talk first, titled, Christian Education Should Focus on Philosophy not religion. Today, I'd like to talk about the same topic, but get into it uh, a little more carefully by meditating on a passage that's been on my mind from the Gospel of St. John. I think it's a very interesting passage that directly applies to the to the concern that I expressed in that talk on Christian education. If you'd like to check out this passage that I'm going to meditate on, it's in John chapter 3, our Lord's nighttime conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Jewish leader, a religious leader in Israel, and he was interested in Christ's teaching, was aware of the miraculous works that Christ was performing. And in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night to ask him some questions came to him at night because he was afraid to show himself with Jesus in the daylight. And he came to Jesus, and we read in John chapter 3, and what I'd like to do is actually back up to the end of John chapter 2 because I think there's an interesting transition that gets lost because our Bible is divided into chapters, and we pick up in chapter 3 and don't establish the context of where we left off in chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, this was after Jesus cleared the temple and drove out all the people who were selling things and doing things in the temple that were not appropriate. Christ goes in, filled with zeal, and clears the temple. And at the end of chapter 2, this little bit gets lost. We read, When Jesus was at Jerusalem, at the Passover, upon the festival day, many believed in his name, seeing the signs of which he did. 
But, this is John chapter 2, verse 24. But, Jesus did not trust himself unto them, for he knew all men. And because he needed not that any should give testimony of man, for he knew what was in man. So at the end of chapter 2, that's the chapter where Jesus turns water into wine. He reveals his glory for the first time to his disciples, his, his divine power, his miraculous power. He clears the temple. And it says that because of the signs that he did, many believed in him. But that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. And it's there that we then transition into chapter 3. We had just got done reading, Jesus did not trust himself to them, for he knew what was in man. And chapter 3 begins, And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So, the arrival of Nicodemus on the scene in the gospel, comes right after we read that Jesus did not entrust himself to men who were believing because of the signs that he did, because he knew what was in man. And it's right on the heels of that statement that we're introduced to Nicodemus who arrives. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are come a teacher from God. For no man can do these signs which you do unless God be with him. And so in the context, we see that Nicodemus is one of these men that we read of in chapter 2. He's one of these men who is believing on Jesus because of the signs that he did. He says, we know that you are a teacher from God because no one can do these signs which you do unless God be with him. And yet there's this contradiction in Nicodemus in that he is testifying one thing with his mouth, and yet here he is meeting with Jesus at night where he can do so in secret. And so we see this issue that's raised in John chapter 2 
that men were believing in him because of the signs, but he did not entrust himself to them. For he did not need anyone to testify of what was in man, for he knew what was in man. And here comes Nicodemus testifying of what is in men to Jesus who knows what is in man and is listening to this man talk of his faith at night. And John is careful to give us that detail, that he came to him by night, because that's significant. And so as Nicodemus says these things, Jesus responds to him with this mysterious statement. He responds to Nicodemus and says, Amen, amen, I say unto thee, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we see what a strange response that is. But in the context of John 2, it makes perfect sense. This is an example where Jesus doesn't respond to the man's words. He responds to what he knows is in the man. And Jesus cuts right to the quick, and he'll do this again in John chapter 4 when he talks to the woman at the well. But he talks to the man, Nicodemus, almost ignores the words that he says, which makes sense in light of those last verses of John chapter 2, and says, unless a man is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we're hit with this mysterious response. And yet Nicodemus seems to understand what Jesus is doing because he responds in a way that reveals that this is what he wants to talk about. And so Nicodemus responds and says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus responds, Amen. Amen, I say unto thee. Jesus speaks to him with authority. Unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes on 
to say this. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Therefore, do not wonder that I said to you, you must be born again. The Spirit breathes where He will, and you hear His voice, but you know not from where He comes or to where He goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And we can see that these are, these are mysterious spiritual words. But remember that Jesus is not talking to a common man. He's talking to a ruler of the Jews. A theologically minded man. A, a man who belongs, I believe, I don't know, yes, it says a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the Jews who believed in the supernatural, unlike the Sadducees who denied the supernatural. The Pharisees were the more faithful, more orthodox of the Jews. Nicodemus was one of them. He was no peasant or common person. He was a theologically minded man who was wrestling with what was going on, what he was seeing and hearing. And Jesus gets right to the point with him in the middle of the night and tells him, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was a Jew. He was a child of Abraham. He had, he believed a claim to God's favor in that he was a descendant of Abraham. He was circumcised. He was obedient to the Jewish law. He practiced the Jewish religion. And he trusted that his religious observance made him a friend of God. And if we back up to John chapter 1, John has already addressed this issue. John chapter 1, verse 9. He was the true light, which enlightens every man that cometh into this world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave to them power to be made the sons of of God to them that believe in his name who are born 
not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we can see that this is what Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about. As many as received him, he gave them power to be made the sons of God. In other words, they were not the true sons of God, but they were prepared to be made the true sons of God. The Jewish law, the covenant that God made with Moses, the Jewish worship was not intended as the end. It was not the, the way of salvation. It was the preparation for the way of salvation. But the time had come when the signs And the shadows and the figures of the Jewish law were being fulfilled in their reality. And that reality was standing in front of Nicodemus, talking to him. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that you have been prepared It's time to choose. You will either receive me or you will reject me. If you receive me, I will give you power to become a son of God, a true son of God, who is not born of blood, nor of the will of of the flesh, nor of the will of man, who's not born of a certain race or nation of people, but who is born of God. And now in John chapter 3, we read Jesus' message to Nicodemus where he says, Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He needs to be born again. He needs to be born not of blood or of a certain flesh. He can't be produced by the will of a man through reproduction. A man can't say, I'm going to produce a son of God as many Christians do today, which is part of the problem that I'd like to address, you cannot become a true son of God unless Christ gives you the power to do so. And he gives that power, St. John tells us, to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name. And here is Nicodemus 
coming to Jesus and Jesus is saying, I know you're interested in me because you see the signs that I do, but you're going to need to choose whether you will become a son of God or not. And don't think to say to yourselves, I'm a son of Abraham. The line of Abraham was established only that the Messiah, the Savior, might be born into the world and that his coming might be known. Now that he has come, this talk of being a descendant of Abraham is irrelevant because the role of the line of Abraham has been fulfilled. The end of that line is standing in front of Nicodemus and Jesus is telling him it's time now to move from the signs and the shadows and the figures to the reality. And if you don't, if you don't make this transition from the physical signs of things to come the physical symbols of the spiritual realities, then you will not participate in those spiritual realities. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again or you will not enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus asks, how can I be born again? And Jesus explains that he's talking about a spiritual rebirth that comes through faith in Christ. And that faith is not just some idle consent of the mind, not some idle talk in secret or a good intention, but there's a line drawn in the sand And you need to step across that line. You need to be willing to receive Christ, to believe in His name, and to profess Him before others. And then Jesus goes on later to say, if if anyone is ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of him before the Father. And if any man confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father. That this secret religion, this carnal, ceremonial religion needs to be moved on from. And Jesus goes on in this conversation with Nicodemus Nicodemus then asks him another question and asks, how can these things be done? What is the mechanism? How can this be done? And Jesus responds to him, Are you a teacher in Israel and know not these things? That surely would be 
humiliating for Jesus to say, you claim to be a master in Israel. You walk around with your rabbi robe on, receiving praise and honor from all of the people. And yet here you are. And when I talk to you of the way of salvation, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Are you a master in Israel and know not these things? And Jesus then says to Nicodemus, that we speak what we know. We testify what we have seen. And you receive not our testimony. See here how Jesus contradicts what Nicodemus is saying with his mouth. He says to Nicodemus, you receive not our testimony. And this is the verse, this next verse is the verse that I'd, I'd like to meditate on. If I have spoken to you of earthly things and you believe not, how will you believe if I shall speak to you heavenly things? If I have spoken to you earthly things and you believe not, how will you believe if I shall speak to you heavenly things? And this is what I'd like to meditate on in light of my previous talk on Christian education, focusing on philosophy and not religion. Jesus is challenging Nicodemus. He says, are you a teacher and you don't know these things? And he says to him, if I have spoken to you earthly things and you believe not, how will you believe if I shall speak to you heavenly things? If I have spoken to you earthly things, things which you can know, things which you can observe and understand, if I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I shall speak to you heavenly things? If God has manifested to us things within our reach, and we have not embraced the truth of those things which are in our reach, which are accessible to us, with our, which are within our comprehension, and we have not embraced those things, 
How can God possibly teach us spiritual things when we refuse the things that are already set before us? And this, I believe, is the problem in modern Christian culture. In modern Christian culture, what Christians are doing and have been doing for the last several hundred years is pretending that Christianity is merely a religion. That the gospel is some kind of eject button that allows us to simply eject ourselves from the responsibilities of life in this world. St. Paul warned that there are men who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny any knowledge of God. And everyone will confess very easily that man was created in the image and likeness of God. And when we ask, in what does this likeness consist? We say it consists in the soul, namely that the soul is created with free will, with understanding, and with reason. God has created us with certain faculties that are like the talents in the parable. And where to work and put these talents to use, these resources that God has already invested in us, where to put them to work and where to make the most of them or to bring God as much profit as we can by working with the resources that He has already invested in us. And what are these resources? Well, these resources are our nature, the gifts that we've been given as human beings. He's given us the senses, which are amazing powers. He's given us the faculty of reason. He's given us free will. He's given us bodies that are unlike bodies of any other animals. And he looks at us having already been given all these resources, 
And he sees us asking for spiritual things. We're asking for spiritual things. But we don't seek them as they're intended to be sought. We don't seek them to perfect and fulfill our nature. We seek them instead as an alternative to the things that we're supposed to be doing by the natural means already given to us. We neglect the works that are proper to human nature. We seek things that are improper, that are inappropriate for us. We don't seek our true end. We don't seek human happiness, which Aristotle, working with his own natural resources, as we all should, explained that human happiness is virtue, perfect virtue. That's human happiness, the fulfillment of our end is to be perfectly virtuous. And yet, if we examine ourselves and ask, have I exhausted the natural resources that God has given me? Have I exhausted by my own efforts? Have I exhausted the strength, the reasoning ability, the memory, the understanding, the freedom? Have I exhausted what God has given me in seeking to know God and His will and in seeking to save my soul? The Catechism teaches us To save our soul, we must worship God through faith, hope, and charity. And God has already given to us, those of us Christians living in the 21st century, God has already given to us so much and made it available to us. He's given us the writings of wise men. He's given us the sacred scriptures available in multiple languages translated into our own native languages. He's given us volumes and volumes of writings of doctors and fathers of the church. He's given us technological advances that make these things accessible to us from the comfort of our own homes at relatively no cost. He's given us years and years and years of life, hours and hours every day. And the question is, have we 
exhausted the resources that he's already provided us with, that we may then ask him for grace beyond these things, for supernatural assistance, or instead, rather, are we asking God to give us things so that we don't have to use the things that he's already given us and we don't have to do the works he's already commanded us to do. So the question is whether or not in our lives we've set up religion as an alternative universe where we pretend that we receive freely spiritual things while we reject the things that are visible, the things that God has manifested to us in our natural environment. And I'll explain what I mean by that. In Romans chapter 1, and I refer to this passage quite a bit, St. Paul talks about how God has revealed himself to man by natural means. God is revealed to us in the work of creation, which is not only the natural world outside of us, in the physical world, the plants and animals, the earth, the heavens, and so on, but God has also revealed himself to us in us, in and through human nature. Socrates explained this, or I should say Plato explained this through one of his Socratic dialogues, First Alcibiades, where Socrates explains that man is a mirror. And again, this is where the ancient philosophical principle know thyself comes in. If you want to know God, the place to begin is in the mirror. Know yourself. Because you are the closest thing to God in this world. Of course, that doesn't mean you with all of your sins and faults. But those things aren't essential to who you are. Those things are accidental. Those things are the result of your own will. But if you are to meditate on and learn of your essence, what you really are, you will find the best source of instruction about God in yourself 
as a human being. That's what it means to know thyself. Know that you are a creature composed of body and soul. That your body is merely an instrument through which your soul operates in this world. That you, you, are never going to die. Your body will quote-unquote die for a season, but you are going to be reunited with that body to live for eternity. And during that time when your soul and body are separated, you are still going to be fully conscious and alive as a living soul. Know thyself. If you look at what you're doing today, what you did yesterday or last night, look in the mirror, look at yourself and ask, am I looking at a creature composed of body and soul made to the image and likeness of God destined for eternal life? either in heaven, with God, or in hell? Do I look like a person destined for heaven? Does my daily schedule look like the daily schedule of a man preparing for eternal life? The things that are in my mind, the things that I think about, the things that I read about, the things that I watch and study the things that I talk about, are those things that are appropriate for a man who sincerely believes that he's a creature composed of body and soul, created to know, love, and serve God and to enjoy Him forever? Does my life, my actual daily life reflect a sincere belief in these things that come out of my mouth? Or am I coming to Jesus in the middle of the night talking about how I know that He is a teacher come from God? Jesus says, spare me the talk of spiritual things. Let's not waste our time pretending to be interested in spiritual things. You haven't even shown yourself interested in earthly things. Let's not talk about the things that are beyond your reach, beyond your comprehension, You haven't made an effort to embrace the things that are within your reach and within your comprehension. If I have spoken to you earthly things, which God has, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I speak to you 
of heavenly things which are out of your reach, beyond your comprehension. In Romans chapter 1, St. Paul says that God has manifested his divine attributes in the things that he made in the natural world. In the natural world, God's divine attributes are on display, not to those who ignore them, not to those who pervert what's natural and turn it all into a means of the satisfaction of lusts and vices, but for those who seek true happiness in virtue and look at the world with eyes that are clear, filled with light, like Jesus says, whose hearts are pure, if we look at the world through the eyes of a virtuous man seeking true wisdom, putting to work all of the natural powers that God has put at his disposal in creation, we will find in the natural world the truth about God and his will manifested. His eternal power, his wisdom, his goodness, these things are manifested to us in the things that God has made, in ourselves and in the things around us. But St. Paul goes on to say that, let me pull it up, I can read it. It's worth pulling up here. Just give me one second. Romans chapter 1. Starting down near verse 18, we read, and this is St. Paul writing, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what do these men do? What do these ungodly and unrighteous men do? They hold the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they suppress the truth. They ignore it, they cover it, they hide it, they try to silence it. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God 
is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Where? How? How has God shown the truth to men? How has God shown it to them? Where has God manifested it to them? Verse 20, we read, For, or because, the invisible things of God, the invisible things of God, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen. And look at that little paradox there. The invisible things are clearly seen. The invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation of the world. Being understood by the things that are made. What things? What, what things are understood? What invisible things are understood? His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. In other words, there's a certain level of religion that is natural that's rational, that's to be expected from any human beings. And this natural religion is what we find in the writings of Aristotle. We find the results of sincere and diligent philosophy. The philosophers investigated the natural world, not as modern scientists pretend to do, but they investigated the world to know God, to know man, to know the order that exists in creation. The goal of their study was to discover the truth, to know man's ultimate end so that they could be happy. Aristotle explains that knowledge of the most excellent end is valuable because it's like a target that an archer can aim at. And if we can know what our end is, we can then aim our lives at that end and and are more likely to attain it. And that end is happiness. This is what the ancient philosophers were seeking. But while some, a small number of men, sought it with the effort and the, the cost to themselves that's reasonable when we consider the value of what God made available to us to know about Him and about ourselves and about our happiness... There are a very small number of men in history 
who pursued that knowledge in an appropriate, reasonable manner. Most men suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Their desire for evil things, even though their conscience tells them, their experience tells them that vice is unhappy. They have resisted the voice of their conscience in many different ways. They've acted in spite of their experiences and have continued to suppress the knowledge that was made available to them instead of using it as a way to rise higher and move forward. The proverb says, as a dog returns to its vomit, the food that it's already rejected, so does a fool return to his folly. And this is what unrighteous men do. They already know that eating this is bad, but they'll eat it again. They already know that smoking this is bad, but they'll smoke it again. They've already done this and learned by experience that this is not good for them, but they'll do it again. And the voice of their conscience, they'll find a way to block that out and ignore it. They'll find some friends to surround themselves with, to encourage them in it. They'll drink a little to make that, to turn down the volume of that conscience. They suppress the knowledge of the truth. They suppress the knowledge of God and of happiness that is already manifested to them. They don't seek what can be known about God. The invisible things of Him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because when they knew God, when they knew God, that is, when it was known to them, when that glimmer of light broke through into their mind, into their soul, they glorified Him not as God. In other words, they didn't respond to Him in a reasonable manner or in a just manner. They did not glorify Him as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish 
heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The fools that return to their vomit, like the proverb says. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God, the God of reason, who would be eternal, infinite, uncorruptible, unchangeable. That's the God of reason. That's the God that reason leads us to know. They exchanged the glory of that God for a God made like corruptible man, like birds, like four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, idolatry and all of their false religion was an attempt to ignore the truth that was manifest to them as they sought to suppress that truth by their unrighteousness and ungodliness. And so, we read, God gave them over to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their bodies between themselves. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. And it talks here about sexual immorality, homosexuality. But what it really is talking about, and it's easy for us to fake morality and say, yeah, those, those homosexuals, they're so perverted and gross. But that's not what it's talking about. He goes on to say, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, being whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affections, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they who commit such things are worthy of death, not only do them, but have pleasure in them that do them. The modern Christian has convinced himself that the bad people in the world who suppress the knowledge of God are characters that they've identified as the sinners. And they've picked their three or four sins that they've decided to demonize and separate from all other sins 
And they read Romans 1, and somehow they read, if they read it at all, they read homosexuals. And then they look out at the political landscape and they say, yep, see, there they are. Look at them over there. The liberals, the Democrats, see, they're gay, pro-gay, pro-homosexual. That's the people Paul's talking about. There they are, right there. Homosexuals, fornicators, people having sex outside of marriage. Oh yeah, the, the, the people having abortions. Yep, that's them. That's the ones God's talking about in Romans chapter 1. But that's not what Romans 1 says. Romans 1 doesn't isolate a few species of sin and say that's the manifestation of this reprobate, irrational, unrighteous, ungodly spirit. St. Paul says in Romans 1, that all wickedness, all sin, lack of mercy is the result of this suppression of the truth and this irrational living. Disobedience to parents is a manifestation of this evil spirit and irrational life. Not just homosexuality, doesn't even mention abortion, all fornication, lack of mercy, disobedience to parents, all sin, all vice. And what happens when men reject this knowledge of God that's manifested from the creation of the world, rather than ascending and growing in the knowledge of God and in holiness, the men are actually abandoned by God and left to degenerate into a self-delusion. One of the marks of that delusion is unmerciful. Unmerciful. And what does Jesus eventually condemn the Pharisees for? Lack of mercy. Lack of justice. He says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the merciful. Because the knowledge of God leads us to humility and humility makes us merciful. We know how hard it is to do good. And we don't act offended or repulsed when we learn of others' sins because we know how hard it is to be good. We forgive others because we know that we need to be forgiven. And yet at the same time, we seek to be perfect. We seek to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We seek to study 
to know God's will, to understand divine revelation. We seek to live according to reason. We seek to know and listen to that knowledge of God that's revealed to us in the things that are made. And when we've mastered this natural religion, we've proven ourselves to have a sincere desire for God by exhausting the resources that have been made available to us, then it's reasonable for us to seek the spiritual things that are beyond that. Then it's reasonable for us. We've already shown ourselves willing to sacrifice, willing to study, willing to work. We've already shown ourselves willing to give up things of the world, to give up selfish ambitions, to give up pleasures and vices, to free ourselves for this pursuit of wisdom and holiness and happiness. We've already shown ourselves in many ways, in every way we can, we've shown ourselves sincere. We've shown that we believe that wisdom is the principal thing and that nothing else can compare with her. We've already shown ourselves as humans with our natural resources as humans. We've already shown ourselves to desire this. And when we've come to that place in our life, then we can look to Christ with sincerity and seek the heavenly things because we already believe the things that he has told us in earthly things or of earthly things. And now we seek to know the heavenly things and we're prepared for them. And this is why I said in that other video, Christian education should be focused on philosophy, on the study of these natural things which are within our reach, for which there's no excuse to be ignorant. These things that are in the natural world reveal our true interests. They reveal whether we're godly or ungodly, whether we're righteous or unrighteous, whether we seek the truth and follow it, or whether we suppress the truth when we stumble upon it. This is the purpose of education. The purpose of education is for us to teach the earthly things to human beings and to give human beings the opportunity to learn the earthly things and prepare that they may receive the heavenly things. Not to try and give the heavenly things to those who haven't even pursued the earthly things and who have no taste for those earthly things, who have no interest in the God of creation, who have no interest 
in the God in whose image they were created, who have no interest in being like God, but who would rather live in a world where there is no God, where they were free to eat all they wanted, indulge all their bodily desires. And we can see that by the way that people live. We can see that in ourselves by looking at our daily schedule, by looking at our diet, by looking at ourselves in the mirror, by looking at what we do with our lives, by looking at how we use our time. We can see whether or not we have a sincere desire for the God who made the world. It's no mystery. It's not something that we have in a private relationship with God, maybe where we meet Him at night when it's convenient for us. This is no mystery. What we are is manifest. It's not what we say we are. It's what we are. And that's why the proverb says, Let another man's lips praise you and not your own lips. If you are what you imagine yourself to be, everyone will know because it's just manifest and obvious. If you are a lover of wisdom, that's not something you need to talk about. Your wife knows whether or not you're a lover of wisdom. Your parents know. Your pastor knows. Your neighbors know. Your colleagues know whether you are special in that you seek to know God, to love and serve God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everyone knows. They can tell by looking at you. It's not a mystery. Your opinion of yourself, what you say to God when you meet with Him at night, is not the reality. Your whole life is the reality. Nicodemus wanted to pretend that he was a religious man. And yet there he stood at night visiting Jesus in the dark when it was convenient. And his deeds revealed the truth about him, which is why, as we read in John 2, Jesus needed that no one should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. It's no mystery. And this is what I think is wrong with Christian education. Look at our schools. Look at the curriculum. Look at what's rewarded 
Look at what's praised. Look at what's honored. Look at where the money is spent. Look at what's focused on. It's very clear that we're not seeking the knowledge of God. That's not the pursuit of these schools. That's not the pursuit of modern teachers or even homeschool parents. It's not. They, Of course they say it is, just like Nicodemus will say it is. And yet when Nicodemus is asked questions about real spiritual truths, he has no idea what Jesus is talking about. And when we go back and study the lives of the saints and the wise men, of the doctors of the church and the fathers of the church, if we read their writings, we'll find the same thing. We don't even know what they're talking about. What we're doing in our lives and studying and teaching, what we're paying attention to, what, what's, in our knowledge, what's in our minds, it's nothing like what they were seeking. It's nothing like what they talk about and write about. It was said of St. Dominic that he was either talking to God or about God. That was his life. He wasn't talking about the football games. He wasn't talking about politics. He wasn't, he wasn't talking about stupid things that Christians are wrapped up talking about, whether we should get a vaccine. How stupid can these conversations get? Read the writings of the church fathers. Read the writings of the philosophers. Read the writings of the doctors of the church. These aren't the things on their minds. These aren't the things they're seeking. These aren't the answers they're searching for. These aren't the things they're explaining. Find me some writing of some doctor of the church that's complaining about political issues of his day. You won't find it because their minds aren't there. We're not like the saints. We can go back and look at the schools they created. We can read the books they wrote about education. We're not doing what they said to do. We're not studying what they studied or taught. We're not reading the books that they read. We're not using our time the way that they used their time. We're not living like they lived. So why are we pretending to have some interest in spiritual things? For Christian education and Christian culture to be renewed, we have to be honest. We can't play this game like Nicodemus pretending that we're going to have some coffee hour talk about some religious topic off the hip. Talk about how, how much we love God and how faithful we are and talk and talk about ourselves, about religion, when our lives testify that what we're saying is not true.
And this is what we see in Christian culture when we look around. We see a lot of people talking about wanting to go to heaven, wanting to be saints, loving God, despising the world. But when we hit the mute button, stop letting them tell us what they believe, what they love, what they desire, and just look at their lives. That's where we find the truth about Christian culture. And when you look at the Catholic school and see them promoting and celebrating the football team or the cheerleaders or the basketball team or the new science lab, what does that have to do with Christian education? When you look at the parents talking about their daughter's SAT scores or what college she was admitted to, or what her career plans are. What does that have to do with the life that Jesus taught us, with the life that the saints and wise men, the doctors and fathers of the church lived? What does that have to do with that? It has nothing to do with that. We're talking about the same exact things that unbelievers are talking about. And we're imagining that we're different. Even though our schools are like theirs, the curriculum is just like theirs, the goals are the same as theirs, the standards are the same as theirs, everything's exactly the same. And we're telling ourselves that we're different. Oh, we're different. Oh, we're different. We're different. Here at so-and-so school, we believe that, well, where do we see that? In this secular curriculum? It's exactly the same as the one in the public school down the road. Oh, you've added this religion class on, oh, I see. So if I go back and read the writings of the saints and doctors of the church, I'll find this idea that we take the secular curriculum and then we add a religion class and we'll see the saints doing that in history? Or do we see a completely different curriculum with completely different goals, completely different standards? Which one do we see if we go back? If we read the scriptures, if we go back and look at the education promoted by the doctors of the church, enjoyed by the saints, taught by the wise men of history. What do we find? Do we find a secular curriculum with some extra literature added, some extra history classes? Or do we find a completely different way of life, completely different courses of studies? Courses of studies that are not going to fit into your convenient little 8 to 3, Monday through Friday, September to June school calendar, which, by the way, is the calendar that was created by the public school, not by Christianity. Why are we even on this schedule?
We know that we're not doing what the saints did. We know that. We have to know that. We know that we're not doing what the doctors of the church tell us to do. We know that we're not studying what wise men studied. So why do we pretend to have an interest in heavenly things when we're not even doing what's reasonable with the earthly things given to us? Why do we imagine that our testimony about ourselves is real, but that the testimony of our actual lives is not real? The answer is because we're, we're deceiving ourselves. We're either going to live the life that we talk about and make it real, or we're just going to kid ourselves. And what we see manifesting itself in Christian education is this reality that we talk a lot of talk, but the fruits don't match the talk. What we should be doing is raising children who understand natural philosophy, moral philosophy, rational philosophy, and have the tools that they need to live like human beings. And they should be challenged to devote their lives to seeking happiness. And they should be told that they can learn of the way to happiness by the study of the things that are made around them and by studying themselves, by knowing themselves. And if they pursue this knowledge with sincerity, with reasonable effort, they're going to come to see the truth in this natural religion like Aristotle did, like Seneca and Cicero and the other virtuous pagans did And their hearts and minds are going to be prepared for those heavenly things. To try and give the children those heavenly things in the current culture and context is to literally cast pearls before swine. To give what is holy to the dogs. And that's what we're doing in modern Christian education. And we're pretending that we're zealous for God because we're doing these things. Because every kid has a rosary in his hand. Every kid is at Mass. Every kid is watching saint movies. Every kid is talking about the lives of different saints and so on. We're pretending, pretending to have an interest in these things. But while we watch the movie about the saint, we're not doing what the saint did. And that's what reveals the real insincerity of this interest. We want to watch Padre Pio pray, but not pray like 
Padre Pio. We want to watch a movie about how St. Ignatius of Loyola pursued wisdom as an adult, but we do not pursue wisdom as an adult like St. Ignatius of Loyola. That's what's wrong with this television and movie Christian culture. We talk about saints, we talk about Christianity, we talk about education, but we don't actually do it. We don't actually do it. We talk about it and we pretend that our interest in it is Christianity itself. And in this, we're deceiving ourselves. Endless talk about education, about prayer, about saints. But we're neglecting the actual work, the actual study, the actual way of life. Pretending to desire the heavenly things while showing no interest in the earthly things. And so, that's why that verse in John chapter 3 has been in my mind. I believe that much of what Nicodemus is saying with regard to his confidence in his Jewish birth, I think is very similar to what many Catholics do thinking about their Catholic birth. Oh, well, I'm baptized. Oh, I'm a Catholic. Oh, I'm a... Look. You can't be born of the flesh into the kingdom of God. You can't be born by the will of any man into the kingdom of God. The only way that you can be born into the kingdom of God is by God himself. And John tells us the way. To those who received him, he gave power to become the sons of God. To those who believe in his name. And That's for each of our children and each of us as individuals to choose in our own freedom. You cannot make your children Christians. You can make them Christians in the sense that they are present and participating in the visible sacramental life of the church. But that is not what it means to be Saved. That's not what it means to be a true child of God. The Catechism explains that there are those in the church who do not have true faith. And so we can't allow this idea to deceive us that the sacramental system and the sacramental, visible, ceremonial, liturgical life of the church is all necessary and good if it brings us to the spiritual reality that it signifies. And if it doesn't, we're just living like Jews. 
we're just pointing back to, hey, look at me. I, uh, I do this, I do this, I do this. I'm circumcised. I, uh, I go to synagogue. I, I say my prayers at this time and this time. I check the boxes. Hey, you know, look at me. I'm a Jew. But that's not it. If we don't desire to know and live according to what can be known of God through earthly things, by our own effort, by our own reason, by our own sacrifice and work, we can't pretend to be interested in the heavenly things. And if we do invest ourselves in the earthly things, we'll prepare ourselves and make ourselves worthy of those heavenly things. And in the education of not only our children, but ourselves, remember, one of the problems we, our children have is that they don't have parents seeking wisdom. They have parents goofing around who all they talk about is money and work and the house and vacation and this and that, telling them to go study religion. That's part of the problem. That's not how wise men live. That's not how saints live. St. Thomas More didn't tell his kids, I have work to do, I'm busy, I'm watching the game tonight, I'm going out to dinner, go study your Bible. That's not how wise men live. Our studies should be focused on these earthly things. God has given them to us and tells us here, Here's knowledge of me. Here's knowledge of this life and the world and how things work and how you can be happy. And when you finish these things, I have more for you. But if you're not going to work on these things and if you're not going to finish these things, there's nothing else to talk about because they are understood in light of these. If you have not believed when I told you earthly things, how will you believe when I tell you heavenly things? So, I hope that's a helpful meditation. That's been a verse on my mind a lot lately as I think about the education of my own children because I tend to do... I tend to make the opposite mistake. I tend to do what's right in my own personal life. And then I do the opposite in the education of my children, giving them, trying to give them the heavenly things without having them pursue the earthly things, when in my life, I did the opposite and continue to do the opposite. You'll notice on on Facebook, if I post a quote or something that I'm reading, it'll be from Cicero or Seneca or something. I'm, I'm reading philosophy in my free time. My mind is always in philosophy, seeking the knowledge of God and of virtue and wisdom through natural means. And yet when I look at my children's education, it's almost entirely religious. And I've realized this past year that this is not a virtue, but this is a fault and an error in how I'm educating my children. And I think this is becoming clearer and clearer to me to realize that I, as the teacher, whose work to restore the classical liberal arts, I was not raised to do this by immersion in religion. 
I was prepared to do this by immersion in philosophy, in languages, in history, and so on. So, if we want those heavenly things, let's prove ourselves sincere by working to gain the earthly things that God has already put within our reach, by which he tests the sincerity of our desire to know him, to love him, and to serve him. God bless.